Hey, this is Avi. Welcome to the Manmukti podcast, where we speak up about South Asian mental health. We're here to connect you with mental health professionals and those with lived experiences of mental illness. One of the strains on mental health in the South Asian community is the pressure of being a model minority. How does that perception affect our understanding and desire to share experience of trauma? In this episode, we talk to Shanta Kanukolu, a licensed clinical psychologist, about her thoughts on gender-based violence and the associated trauma in the South Asian community. Shanta has also just started her own private practice in Chicago, so we'll hear about how she became interested in mental health and how she thinks we can tackle stigma. Hi, Shanta. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Manmukti podcast. Uh, we're really happy to have you here. And we want to get started just by asking you uh, an intro of who you are, where you're located, and what you do. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really excited that this podcast even exists and you guys are um, pushing this endeavor. So thank you for thinking of me and for having me. Um, as for who I am, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist here in Chicago. Um, I'm originally from New Jersey, graduated from Rutgers University, um, but I moved to Midwest um, in 2005 to start graduate school at the University of Michigan. Um, I graduated from the Joint Psychology and Women's Studies PhD program there, and uh, then moved to Chicago, um, where I've worked in a variety of settings. I've worked um, at Cook County Jail um, and then the 19th Judicial Circuit Court in Lake County, I shifted gears a little bit since then. Um, I work currently at the Edward Hines VA Hospital, and I also have a part-time private practice downtown. And, you know, these jobs might seem like a little scattered, they're a little bit, you know, varied, but the commonality, I would say, in all those jobs is that my interest has been in working with ethnic minority populations that have been impacted by trauma. And trauma, of course, is an emotional response to any sort of distressing event, like, an accident, rape, gang violence, um, a natural disaster, or a type of abuse like physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. The private practice um, in downtown Chicago is a little newer, but I've been really excited about that since it's actually the first time in my career I'm actually able to target working with South Asian Americans or you know, South Asians who are interested in uh, receiving mental health assistance. So crossing my fingers and... Um, just in the journey to see how it goes. Well, thank you for setting that up and, and doing that for the community. I think that's great. You mentioned that you worked in all these different types of settings and specifically related to trauma, though. Would you say that the trauma that you dealt with with your clients at each of these different places were unique, or was it kind of it ran the range of each of these jobs? Yeah, I would say each of these jobs really impact you know, the populations that came to seek care there. Um, very different, um, you know, demographics, uh, very different um, family structures. Um, you know, I worked in the in Cook County Jail. I was working in the women's division, and um, that was specifically in a program that provided um, treatment for women um, impacted by trauma and substance abuse. Um, and then over at Lake County, I was working in the um, specialty court program, and um, they attracted individuals who also struggle with substance abuse. Um, you know, I think the types of trauma were varied, but there is such a commonality when it comes to trauma that people are struggling with um, similar symptoms across the board. 
Um, you know, my, my veterans at the VA, obviously, uh, many struggle with PTSD from um, coming back from uh, wars or different combat zones. And again, very different types of trauma, um, but the commonality is that they experience flashbacks, you know, um, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, anxiety, depression, and sort of a, you know, um, some existential angst about what's next for them and um, trying to learn how to attach to people and cultivate more, um, you know, well-balanced lives. And how did you actually become passionate about mental health in the first place and get started on this path to helping people in this way? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, when you asked this question to me and you told me we're going to ask about this, it really, I really had to do some um, thought on, on my own, some more personal reflection. So thank you for the opportunity to do that. Um, of course. So like many, yeah, I would say like many um, Indian American uh, individuals of this generation, I um, first thought out I was going to do, um, uh, you know, medical medical care in terms of being a doctor, getting an MD. I think your first guest on the podcast, Mega, shared something similar to that. So I started off uh, pre-med, and I found myself not really feeling passionate about the classes, not doing very well in the classes, not feeling excited about the things that I was learning. And it wasn't until I started taking some psychology courses my sophomore year that I really feel like I was finally in a place that I felt um, like I was blossoming as an individual and really excited about being in the classroom. And so I graduated ultimately with a degree in psych and public health. And just looking back, I'm so glad I made the switch and and really loved it. I think college was also the first time I was away from home and was processing some personal experiences as well. Um, it was the first time that I was processing that someone close to me was sexually abused as a child by someone in our Indian American community, um, in our religious community. And it was also the first time that I was processing my own personal experiences of abuse and depression. And so, you know, I think along with taking classes that were really exciting to me, I was doing this personal processing. And I was even sharing with others a bit of this process. And I found, you know, people in the community, in the Indian American community, reacted in, you know, one of two ways. It was either kind of confusion and avoidance of what I was talking about when I talked about why I was doing it. But, you know, another, the other part of the population uh, would start disclosing things to me. They would start sharing that something like that happened to them or they had been sexually abused or, you know, they never told their mom what happened with their cousin or, um, you know, some uh, family friend did such and such. And so I just was intrigued. I realized, wow, there's this theme of avoidance or this theme of a desire to really talk about it and, and get some, some answers or some help or some validation about it. And um, it kind of turned me on to this idea that, you know, there are people in our community that are struggling to learn how to process these topics um, and don't know who to talk about it with them. Um, because we do know that actually when, when people disclose histories of abuse, and the response is uh, one of disbelief or a negative uh, um, belief system or one of blame, it can actually be just as traumatizing as the trauma itself. And so I really started thinking more about, you know, how do we, how do we avoid that? How do we uh, provide more healing in our community? And from there, I kind of went forward and went ahead of grad school and was lucky to have... Um, professors and individuals who helped me cultivate some of my interests like this. Absolutely. And th thank you so much for 
sharing what you did about your personal experience and those of your loved ones. We we know that's not easy. Um, now you you mentioned that you were in you were you were in grad school and that's kind of you know where you you, you went forward on this path to becoming the psychologist that you are today. So we talked before about some of the research that you did when you're working towards your degree. So if you could give us a bit of intro into what you did in terms of research, the the findings of that and what it related to specifically with mental health. Uh, so at the University of Michigan, I work with Dr. Ramaswamy Mahalingam. Um, at the time, he was one of the few people who studied mental health issues with the South Asian immigrant community, um, which was honestly the reason why I even went to the University of Michigan in the first place. He was great at letting me shape my own research and help me understand how to ask the questions I wanted to ask within the research context, which was great. Um, so before I get into my research, I'm going to quickly define one term that um, many of you may already um, know or be familiar with. Um, it's the uh, model minority term. Um, so that was a term that was coined in the 60s, right, to describe um, Japanese Americans originally. Um, it was uh, used to sort of um, compare Japanese Americans to African Americans at the time to sort of justify why, you know, it's possible after all, for immigrant communities to do well in the U.S. So it's a controversial topic, right? One, it, oh, sorry, controversial term. One, it masks issues within uh, communities um, like the Japanese American communities. And I should go back and say that it's a term that's now been um, used for um, many other Asian subgroups as well. Um, and the problem is, right, that it masks issues within these communities. Sure, um, these communities might have a higher degree of socioeconomic success, there might be maybe higher educational attainment, lower criminality, you know, higher family or marital stability, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is doing perfectly well and happy and has no issues, right? So that's that's one issue with that term. The other one is that, you know, historically it's been used to suggest that, you know, every immigrant community should be like this, that there's no need for us to make any governmental changes or um, to help address social issues from a systemic perspective. So this term, you know, this model minority term, I think there can be a source of pride when one is a part of that community because there are all these positive associations with it. But there's also some pressure to live up to that population. Oh, sorry, live up to that to that that term or that that stereotype. Yeah, I so think, what I think I that's actually to... really useful that you define that for us. I actually had no idea that it was originally used to refer to Japanese Americans. And it's, I think it's something that's come up time and again in the conversations we've had uh, in this podcast as well mm -hmm. as with others about how mental health problems become so prevalent in the community in the first place, right? Like, why is there stigma? It's because, you know, we're trying to be such a model minority in some cases, right? Like, we're trying to not uh, let out the fact that we're dealing with problems just like anyone else's. And, and right. so, you know, I think, that, I think it's really useful to start from that, start from that footing, so... Oh, please continue, though. Good, good, good. thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, what I want to study was, hey, so how does internalizing this model minority belief system or this ideology, how does endorsing that, internalizing that, believe that, how does that um, impact other outcomes, like um, perceptions of child sexual abuse or um, awareness of child sexual abuse or myths about child sexual abuse? Um, and then how does it impact um, how much people consider going to seek therapy professionally or whether they um, even have uh, coping mechanisms to deal with um, tougher issues. So um, 
I, you know, used a scale um, that my professor created um, at the time, uh, Dr. Mahalingam, and I wanted to, I first measured um, how much uh, people uh, believe this. And so I had it on a, on a scale, I asked them to rate how much they believe these, um, these set statements, such as, I feel pressure of living up to the expectations people have of me as a model minority. Or I do not mind making personal sacrifices to be a successful Asian American. So people who endorse higher levels of this model minority ideology, they're more likely to agree with statements like these. Does that make sense so far? So just to be clear for listeners, the more people that believe in this model minority idea, the more likely they are to be in denial of any issues in the community. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely one piece of it. Um, interestingly, you know, I actually did have a factor called denial of abusiveness in my um, research, and that was actually not significantly related, interestingly enough, to model minority ideology. It seems like what is more, um, I guess, salient here is that people, it seems that like people don't deny that it happens, but there is this belief that the more that one is um, culturally identified or ethnically identified or the more uh, proud we are um, of our identity, then, then, you know, culture will protect us from it. So maybe it happens, maybe the assumption is, if I can interpret my findings, maybe the assumption is, okay, um, you know, we don't, we don't deny it happens, but it must be happening to people that are not culturally identified. So there's this belief that, um, culture will protect us. Culture will save us from this issue. Um, so, it, you know, this was a, kind of an odd finding because we, we were thinking if people denied it, then they also are going to think that culture is important. But surprisingly, they didn't deny it happened, but they they just really felt like the culture will save us. That seems like the more salient um, finding that came out, which, you know, we know that's not always true. One can be religious. One can be uh, well-to-do, one can be, you know, all these perfect model minority things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they don't um, have significant mental health issues or some psychopathology or own histories of abuse themselves that make them do things like um, perpetrate on other people in the community. And when they when people think that culture is going to kind of save them from abuse or prevent them from dealing with abuse, is there sort of a kind of a sliding scale there? Do people believe that the more cultured they are, the more tied back to their um, South Asian roots that they are, that the more um, safe they are from dealing with abuse, things like that? Or is it, is, do they believe like, you know, if I, if I attend all these cultural events or if I make time mm-hmm. to go to the temple or mosque uh, every weekend, mm-hmm. then, you know, I'm being more cultural and I'm being more, um, South Asian and, you know, this doesn't happen to South Asians. Is, is that how that works for people? So, yeah, so I didn't actually measure um, how they identified as um, South Asian or Indian or Pakistani. I kind of just looked at, like, how much they actually believe they were that. And the more that they believe they were that, um, the more they believe that they were the model minority, the more they believe that South Asian cultural values would be buffers or protective factors for child sexual abuse. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes that makes absolute sense. 
Yeah, so I didn't look at the specific factors that contributed to that model minority ideology. I just want to know how much do they actually even believe it in the first place. They walked in with that mindset. And and to be clear, this research was on um, specifically about 300 South Asian undergraduates from across the country. So um, it, it, I do wonder if we do this research on people within the community who are older or different generations, it might have led to different um, responses or different uh, belief systems. So this is a snapshot, though, of um, specifically South Asian or South Asian American college students between the ages of 18 and 22 living in the U.S. Um, but, you know, again, what was interesting was it kind of, I think we assume that the more Americanized or Westernized one is, one will have be on these topics. But the truth is, I think we internalize and we buy in or believe certain stereotypes about our communities because that's what we grew up with. That's who we are. They inform how we think and what we believe about ourselves. And perhaps even being brown in an in an area where maybe you stand out can make one feel even more strongly ethnically identified or really have them know about being a model minority than their context. Okay, gotcha. You know, I, I think that I'd like to then ask more about how this uh how this denial or how this identification with a stronger culture uh, manifests itself in people seeking help. Mm-hmm. Model minority um, ideology was not significant to um, whether people, what the people's attitudes were towards seeking professional help. But what was significant was gender. And this is really consistent with a lot of past studies with other populations in the U.S. Specifically, women um, held more positive attitudes towards seeking mental health services. Um, and this is consistent across many, many ethnic minority groups um, and, and majority groups as well in the U.S. Um, but what this made me wonder was, okay, if women have more positive attitudes towards, towards seeking mental health services, where are the males getting help? Or are they getting help at all if they have mental health issues? Are they able to even uh, label when they are having a mental health issue? Or if they are sexually abused, are they able to even acknowledge that they can go somewhere for help? Right. And would you say that's something that, and you said that's something that's not unique to South Asians, right? Like across the board, males are less likely to seek help for this kind of trauma that they might experience. Males are less likely to actually um, seek therapy at all, Um, not just for something like child sexual abuse, which has its own stigma attached to it, but even um, for other other concerns. I think there is a lot of literature on the gendered nature of help-seeking which, you know, comes from so many different variables and so many different types of socialization factors, whether it be media or family. But it's it's something that's important because we know that depression, anxiety, trauma doesn't just apply to to females. So then where are the males getting help for that? Hey, listeners. My name is Shama, and I am part of the podcast team here at Manmukti. On this episode's break, we bring you a brand new segment we like to call Pun Mukti, where we tell you a terribly wonderful joke. Why? Because there's that quote about laughter being the best medicine or something. And honestly, anytime that there's an opportunity to share a terrible joke, we'll run with it. So enjoy. So there is a man, we'll call him 
Anand. <laughs> no, we will call him. We'll call him Abhi after our founder here at Manmukti. So Abhi is working the third shift at this line job in production, and he has a really terrible shift. So he heads straight to the bar after work at seven a.m. So he's heading out there, and he just pulls into the first place that he sees. So Abhi sits down at the bar, and the bartender comes up, and he puts a bowl of peanuts and a napkin in front of Abhi, and he goes, "Hey man, what can I get you?" So Abhi says. Um, I'll just, you know, get a beer. So the bartender goes back, gets the beer, puts it down in front of Abby, and then he walks off to do his bartenderly duties. So Abby's sitting there, and he's hanging out, he's reflecting on his shift, all pensive, and on the screens in this bar are all these sports highlights and news and etc. things that are on at bars, and he uh, suddenly hears somebody say, wow, your skin looks really great today. So he's looking around and he's like, where is that coming from? Like, there's nobody else in this bar. So he ignores it and he thinks that maybe some of the TV is is on really quietly. And he just happened to pick up on something. So then, you know, so then he's sitting there minding his own business again. And he hears somebody again say, your hair looks really good like that. So he's like, who is saying all these nice things? I don't get it. Like, he's looking around. So the bartender happens to come back up to check up on him. And Abby says to the bartender, hey, is, is anybody else here at the bar? And so the bartender is looking around like, no, dude, it's 7.30 in the morning. Nobody else is here. So um, Abby goes, that's weird. I just, I keep hearing someone say nice things about me. So the bartender looks at him and says, oh, that's just the peanuts. They're complimentary. <laughs> oh, stop, stop, stop. Thank you. I know. I know. I thank you so much. I heard it somewhere and I just loved it. And you're so welcome. Oh, please cut it out. To get involved, speak up, and share your bad joke, connect with us on all things social media at Munmukti. Let's get back to the show. know that depression, anxiety, trauma doesn't just apply to to females. So then where are the males getting help for that? Right, right. So some of these issues you've been talking about, especially in regards to abuse, how often do they tend to go undiagnosed for various reasons? And how does that lead to potential harmful consequences? Yeah, that's a great question. So I can't say how often they go undiagnosed since, of course, um, we don't have the data on those who don't come forward, right? But we do know that there are various reasons why uh, people are not coming forward and sharing that they've been sexually abused or they have mental health issues. Um, one reason has been talked about, I think, quite a bit in your podcast, which has been great and very accurate, that there is stigma. There is the stigma associated with sharing personal conflicts or issues to individuals outside of the family it can mean shaming one's family or maybe messing up one's reputation. But, you know, in addition to that, um, a number of other factors have come up um, when people have been interviewed or um, through research on South Asian Americans. Um, there's been, I think, similar to other communities of color, there's some mistrust. Uh, people fear coming forward and talking to people outside of their community 
out of fear of being judged or um, being discriminated against. Um, and it's really hard to explain one's culture, I think, from scratch uh, to someone outside of the community. And so this often prevents people from jumping into therapy in the first place. Um, additionally, um, confidentiality um, is, is, is an issue at times. I think there is a fear that even if someone does find um, someone from their community as a therapist and they don't have to explain culture, then there's a fear that, oh, what if they know someone else in my community? What if they know my aunt? What if they um, are married to, you know, my doctor? You know, so there's a fear that, oh, no, if we have someone who understands us, that might mean um, that they can break confidentiality and spread our issues um, within the community. Um, language barriers is another reason. Um, we know a lot of individuals have families, um, even if they themselves, these individuals, want to come forward and speak English, perhaps their family members don't, and then how do we incorporate them into therapy to talk about tough things like sexual abuse or gender violence. Um, lastly, you know, I think something that I personally have witnessed um, is that there is a general lack of knowledge and stereotyping about the legal process in the U.S. So I know someone who um, had been sexually abused as a child, like I mentioned earlier in this interview, and when I asked their mom why they hadn't come forward, you know, she was there was a lot of pain there and a lot of fear, and she had said that she was honestly afraid that her child would be taken away immediately if she ever reported this to the police or reported it to DCFS. And, you know, looking back now, this is, you know, a conversation I had with her when I was in my youth, and I was not in the profession um, at the time. But looking back back at it now, I wonder how many other people, you know, were watching Law and Order SVU or were hearing stories on the news, which made them think that if they came forward, if they uh, actually reported someone from their community, then they would lose their child. And that's that's a real fear, and that's a really... Um, scary consequence. So if you think about it in that way, you know, I can empathize with why people don't want to come forward, but then the consequences, the perpetrator is still in the community, there are no consequences for him or her, and um, then the child is left sometimes having to grow up in that community with that perpetrator there around them. I think, um, you know, that movie years ago, uh, Monsoon Wedding, did a great job of... Uh, I think one of the first movies that I've seen, at least from my memory, that kind of capture that. But this is a real, it's a real consequence that people oftentimes have to continue living with their perpetrators um, at family parties or at temples because there's this, again, all these barriers to actually um, having this issue addressed. Wow, yeah, thank you so much. Especially that last point is not something that I really would have thought of, that people are scared that they're going to be taken away. I think that's very important that we bring that to light for people that it's it's not something that's going to happen like in the like in the TV shows. Mm-hmm. You also brought up a very important kind of a dilemma at the beginning, right? Of let's say someone who's South Asian that's having mental health issues goes to a mental health provider that's not from their community. They feel that they might be judged. If they go to someone that is of their community, they feel that they might lose the confidentiality. So it seems mm-hmm. like there's kind of a catch twenty two of like how can people really comfortably seek uh, mental health services. I think one of the things you brought up earlier as well is when you talk to South Asians about your own personal experience earlier in college, you found kind of two methods, mm-hmm. right? It was either, you said it was one one path was confusion and avoidance. Another path was people actually opening up to you in return and sharing 
uh, what they've dealt with in their lives in regards to mental illness issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you think we get more people to take to that second path? What what is the what is the steps we need to do as a community to help us reach um, reach a place where we're all sharing a bit more instead of going the confusion and avoidance path? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think um, you know, I think familiarity um, breeds more comfort, right? I think when things are so unfamiliar, that's when people don't know what to do and they go to their um, I guess their habitual ways of coping, right? Um, so if people can become more familiar with um, what abuse is and what um, trauma is or what mental health issues are and can be a little less, um, uh, I guess, a, you know, fearful of what it means, I think just kind of having dialogue, having communication can really be um, helpful to then know what the next steps are. Um, I think I, I also encourage people who are not in the field, right, to if they hear something that doesn't feel right or sound right, to maybe avoid um, the response of maybe shake it off or let's not talk about it or silencing, maybe, you know, ask them to go elsewhere to a professional to get help. Or I guess what I'm trying to say is even if you don't know what to do specifically, if you know someone else who could, lead them in that way, right? Lead them in that direction as opposed to, um, kind of minimizing it. So I think if there was less minimizing and more familiarity with these topics, then I think it could um, lead to better outcomes overall. Um, so I think also as um, parents or uncles or aunts or, or grandparents, I think it's important to also make sure that we are aware that this happens to our kids. So, you know, keep talking about it. Uh, you know, there are books out there what good touch versus bad touch is or um, what, um, you know, um, unsafe touching is and safe touching is. And if something doesn't feel right, say something about it. There are books about it. There are um, websites now about it. So I think we need to also make sure that um, we're educating ourselves um, and also staying open if we don't know what to do about something to go directly to people who can. If, if you feel like you don't believe Something that you're being told, like a like an allegation of you know child sexual abuse or domestic violence, something that encourages you know kind of catch yourself, never tell someone that it didn't happen to them, believe people when they tell you because that's their reality and that's important. So I guess the overarching theme would be um, not minimizing people and, and staying open, even if it's something that you're uncomfortable about. I think that's I think that's incredibly important that you said that. Yeah, and thank you for. Um, helping people realize that I think one of one I think the last question I really have for you is along these lines of educating people or like becoming more familiar with it and then seeking help mm-hmm. when 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 the case comes that you don't know um, how to help how to deal with someone who comes to you for, with mental health issues your role specifically mm-hmm. as someone who has their own private practice who is South Asian and is and is dealing with South Asian clients how do people like you kind of help help tackle the stigma how are you trying to get more familiarity within the community by setting up your private practice? And in a sense, how has it gone? Like, how how's the experience been so far? You know, it's it's just started. It's uh, pretty slow right now. But I've been so amazed that so many people have come forward and said that they were particularly wanting to work with me because I was South Asian or because 
they didn't have to explain a lot of um, nuances about their families to me um, yeah. or languages, religion, that sort of thing. So that's been really um, nice to hear because, you know, ethnic match doesn't always work. Um, ethnic match, sometimes uh, people don't want to talk to someone who looks like them because of the fear of judgment or fear that maybe they know somebody in their community or know a family friend of theirs and, you know, it'll be, our community can be quite small, right? Um, so ethnic match doesn't always work. It's it's really a personality match um, or style of therapy that um, is, I think, more important. So I've been really impressed and, and pleased to see that so many people have come forward to say that they specifically wanted to work with a woman of color or specifically a South Asian provider um, because they felt like they could, you know, not explain, spend so much time explaining things. They would have to with a non-South Asian provider. So that's been, that's been really nice. Um, as far as uh, being a mental health provider and what to do, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I, I would like to, to do more trainings um, within the community. Um, I was really impressed with, um, back in New Jersey, um, the organization Samaj has done a really good job. I was impressed with the types of um, events they have there. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with them or if you've seen their work. Yes, I have. Uh, yeah, but they, you know, I was really impressed with um, how they had yoga classes and um, groups um, for for families and for individuals. They just have a really diverse set of um, trainings. I, I don't know if that's something, a model that's actually everywhere. I think that's um, not as common. So, you know, I, I would like, I would love to see more South Asian mental health providers do it, and I would like to be engaged in it too, do more trainings within the community, um, um, for parents, um, for children, and specifically around child sexual abuse. I know that's a tougher topic to do trainings about because I think I don't know how many people would be signing up for that if I were to walk right. in there and say, let's talk about good touch versus bad touch with your kids. Um, I think that would freak some parents out a little bit. Um, but I think that's important to note. Like, why are we freaked out about it, right? Like, why is it important to talk about it? Um, I think trainings at college campuses would be great. College, like like myself, college is the first time where people are often um, kind of processing their own histories or learning about themselves. So I think as a South Asian professional, I'd love to talk to South Asian college students and say, hey, I'm here. My private practice is open. I know it might be confusing to even navigate the, the system of how to get help. Let me help you with it. I, I'm not fluent in other Indian languages, but I would love for more my community members to do maybe bilingual treatment groups or, or provide affordable fees for those who can't afford it. That's something that I personally am doing at my pri private practice. You know, it's challenging sometimes to do that, but when I can, I, I'd like to provide more affordable fees. And, you know, I want to add something I'd also love to see within our community is uh, something like the Sangat model. Have you heard of Sangat before? I have not. So Sangat is actually, I believe it's an, a healthcare organization, a nonprofit healthcare organization with headquarters in Goa in India. And they recently did a, a little talk about it in NPR. What, what, the, what they do um, in India is right now within the Sangat model is they're trying to train people within the community who have at least a 10th grade education to get some basics on mental health training. So they go, so individuals there go through a three week workshop. It's taught by mental health professionals, 
and individuals learn how to talk to people with depression or alcoholism or other problems, and they learn how to give people with those issues some tasks on how to refocus their minds. So it's an adaptation of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a popular treatment around the world right now um, aimed at changing harmful patterns of thinking. So in two studies they've done over there in India, um, seven out of ten patients attended all their sessions with their lay counselors. And that's actually comparable with best treatment completion rates in Western scientific literature. And they also found that depression was significantly better, and I think the alcohol trial also showed significantly less drinking. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I would hope or I'm hoping over time that we can create a model like that, or even if not from professional mental health providers, perhaps we can sort of train people within our community on how to talk about these topics or how to direct people to shift their thinking and their behaviors in a positive way. I know it might sound odd coming from me because that's, you know, like I'm losing business there, but that's okay. I'm okay with people getting help wherever they can. Um, It doesn't have to be in traditional psychotherapy settings. I I hope it can be at temples or, you know, at family parties or within the community as well. Right, right, absolutely. I think that's something that we hope Manmukti can do eventually is to help the community as a whole just be more educated about mental health such that they can help each other about these things. And, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, even if it does mean you know, taking business from you, we, we would hope that at least as a community we uh, were able to kind of discuss these issues more openly with more familiarity, like you said. But mm-hmm. in, in the meantime, I do want to give you business. So for those of our listeners who are in the Chicago area, um, how can they find you if they do mm-hmm. want to? talk to you for help or anything like that. Sure. Thank you for that. Um, I currently work for Alliance Collaborative Psychotherapy. That's at 500 North Michigan. If you were to even Google me, um, Shanta Nishi Kanakolu, you can find me. Or Alliance Psychotherapy is probably the easiest way since I know there's a lot of vowels in my name there. So Alliance Collaborative Psychotherapy is where I practice right now. And, you know, I'm happy to share my email address if that at some point on the website at Manmukti, if that's easier. Sometimes people don't want to talk on the phone and rather just email, text to start the process. And I'm happy to do that. You know, and I want to offer my services not just as um, a psychotherapist, but I think even, I think just the basics of even who is a psychologist, who is a social worker, who is a psychiatrist, who performs what tasks. I think that can be really confusing for people. I can't tell you how many people I've um, had to talk through that with. It's totally confusing. There's no book on it. Um, There's so many websites. So I'm happy to even direct people within the community, if, if needed, on, you know, what's maybe the appropriate mental health professional to seek or what's the appropriate type of setting they should be looking for. Is it inpatient? Is it outpatient? Is it a shelter? That's, you know, I, I think one of the things doing a great job of trying to compile all the resources um, state-wise, but I'd be happy to help if people um, just want to know, you know, what the differences are and where to go next for their specific uh, presenting issues. Great. Thank you so much for talking to us today, and thank you so much, more importantly, for everything you are already doing for the community. We really appreciate you uh, being on the podcast with us. My pleasure, and thank you for doing what you're doing. So nice talking to you. Hey, everyone. If we could just ask for a little bit more of your time and love to rate our podcast on iTunes or shoot us a review, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks to the podcast team of me, Anand, Buddy, Shama, and Ashley. And thanks to the Harmonic Flaneurs for providing music for today's episode. You can find out more about how to access their music by checking our episode description.
If you want to continue the conversation, check out our website at manmukti.org or connect with us on social media. We'll see you next time.